Hi, my name is Alan Roth, president of Secure America Now, and host of the Code Red podcast. And today we have with us, we are privileged to have with us, George Marlin. George is a political activist, a biographer, historian, commentator, and recently the author of Mario Cuomo, The Myth and the Legend is the book. Highly recommend you getting the book. And he also wrote a piece in Newsmax magazine, which I think is extremely relevant to our situation today. The column was called The Roots of Progressive Authoritarianism. And I would like for you, George, to explain to us how America seems to have gone from being a free and tolerant society to one in which if someone expresses, whether in academia, in the press, or in public office, if someone expresses attitudes that would be considered conservative attitudes, pro-American attitudes, that they are immediately assaulted verbally, that some of them have lost their jobs. And you in this column talk about the progressive ascendancy in this country and the roots of progressivism. And let us begin by you giving us a definition of what is progressivism and who are progressives in today's day and age, um, and what are they doing to us? Well, it's very important, which unfortunately, the failure of the conservative movement in many ways is they did not understand or appreciate uh, a lot of the philosophical underlying foundations of leftist movements. Philosophy counts. Paul Marx is not an economist, he was a philosopher. And he based his system of, uh, his, his communist system based on these philosophical origins. This is not new. So the progressive movement, what happened in the late 19th century and the early 20th century was a movement known as progressivism. Okay, and it was epitomized by Woodrow Wilson who was elected president in 1912. If Teddy Roosevelt didn't run on the third line as a progressive party for president who split the vote and threw out of office William Howard Taft who was a Republican a very fine conservative, conservative mind, later went on to become Chief Justice of the United States, this would have been a very different nation. But the progressives were, in their own way, self-righteous, arrogant elitists who believed that the common folks out there, those people in flyover country, were not fit to govern, were not fit to make, make decisions about the direction this country might be going in. They, they subscribe to two things. First of all, they believe in the administrative state, that experts should be brought in to run the government. You may remember the great conservative writer, the ex-communist James Burnham, wrote a book in the 1940s called The Managerial Revolution. Uh, by that, he meant that he didn't think socialists would be taking over the American government, but he thought a professional class of management would take over the government, as well as take over corporations, uh, as we're seeing in our time as well. So there was the administrative state. They were the smartest, as we 
was later called by David Halberstam the best and the brightest to run government. Then there was an underlying philosophy to this. They rejected the concept of the natural law, which is the underpinning of all other law. Natural law was embraced by the founding fathers when they said in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creators with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They embrace the natural law. Uh, Abraham Lincoln embraced natural law. Daniel Webster, all the early founding fathers and the opposition to, to slavery was based on the natural law. It was the, the Declaration of Independence was the preamble to the Constitution. Because the sentence after life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness says, and governments are created to secure those rights. Not grant those rights, but to secure those rights. Interestingly enough, in the second paragraph of John Kennedy's 1961 inaugural address, he said, the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. So there are two types of law, the natural law, which is, gives us our fundamental rights, and then there is something known as positive law, which is civil law. And civil laws should be based in compliance with the natural law, the day-to-day -day management of government, rules and regulations, be it traffic regulations, the water regulations, whatever they might be. The progressives rejected the natural law and said there is nothing beyond the positive law. There is nothing beyond civil law. And whatever the state says is. Woodrow Wilson defined freedom as people complying with the will of the state. And this goes back hundreds of years ago. Thomas Hobbes, for beginners, Hobbes, who died in 1679, said morality is defined by the state. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who died in 1778, he created the general will in his philosophy. The government defines morality. David Hume, who died in 1776, a British empiricist, said, virtue is whatever gives pleasure. Jeremy Bentham, who died in 1832, created the pleasure principle. Pleasure is good. So it's whatever the state defines that is good, and that is civil law, and that is what we are supposed to obey. But where does that take us? Just as Holmes epitomizes, just as Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was the hero of the progressive movement, on the Supreme Court, he made it clear that the natural law is ridiculous and might makes right. He who has the power plays the tune. And whatever that power wants to impose, they can impose. And so the rights of the minority, in effect, what James Madison, the founding fathers, tried to avoid the tyranny of majority, they go with the tyranny of the majority. So that's the foundation of the progressive movement. The other part of it is, through this positive law thing, they decide to define as well who has rights and who has the right to live. So the eugenics movement was part of the progressive movement. And there's some, there's some scholarship out there that I could recommend to your, to your listeners a book called Liberal Reformers by Thomas Lennett, and another book called Eugenics and Progressives by Donald Pickens. So the progressive movement said, the eugenics movement basically said, as Margaret Sanger said, more children from the fit, less for the unfit. The, uh, the, Brook, the laboratory out in Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory was originally called the Eugenics Laboratory, and it was funded by the Rockefellers, the Harrimans, and some of the other rich people of that time. So that was also part of the movement. They frowned upon the Eastern, they despised the Eastern Europeans that were coming to the United States at that point in time. 
They, they funded, the Congress funded the Dillingham Commission, which was, came out in around 1922, with pseudoscientific eugenics analysis on how to create laws that would prevent uh, Eastern Europeans, non-white, uh, non-Anglo-Saxons from coming into this nation. And from 1922 to 1965, the spigot for immigration was turned off, turned down in this country. So the progressives have this view that they determine the law, there is nothing beyond them, and they also take the position that more fit children for the fit, less from the unfit, which brings us to euthanasia, abortion, all the issues we're facing today. So those roots go back to the progressive moment. But I might add, what is the consequences of this? If you accept nothing beyond positive law, as Hobbes did, as Holmes did, so did Adolf Hitler. Hitler was the legally elected chancellor of Germany. He was legally given supreme power after Paul von Hindenburg died. The Fuhrer principle came into play where Hitler defined the law and he was given that power by duly elected legislators. And that led to everything we know, the racial laws, etc. So Jews legally were defined as non-persons, and if you're a non-person, you could be treated as a beast, and we could rationalize murdering six million Jews. That's what it came down to. And interestingly enough, at the Nuremberg trials, even though Justice Jackson of the Supreme Court, who was the primary prosecutor of the, of the first round of the big names, Goering and all of them at the Nuremberg trials, even though he, I think, he may have clerked for Justice Holmes, even though he battled with the author of Justice Holmes, he realized that in the civil law, the Nazis committed no crimes. And to convict them at the North, as civil law presupposes a civil legislator, natural law presupposes a legislator named God. So to convict them, he brought back the natural law that there are inalienable rights. And since that time, as Malcolm Muggeridge, the British journalist said once upon a time, you could make it as a new rule that against humanity within two generations will become fashionable. And that's what we're facing now. The crimes of Nazis committed euthanasia, abortion, forced abortion, et cetera, et cetera. We're seeing that becoming part of the rule of the day in this nation. So the progressives have a very dark side, Alan, and we're seeing that coming out. And depending on what happens in Georgia on January 5th, uh, if they take complete control of government, we're going to see this kind of ideological agenda being, uh, being enforced, in my judgment, or created. So, George, uh, first of all, thanks for that introduction. Uh, you're referring to the Georgia, the two Senate races in Georgia yes. that will determine which party controls the United States Senate. And let's just take another step in the direction of understanding how directly this affects America, these progressive ideas. Woodrow Wilson, president of the United States, president of Princeton University before he was president of the United States, historian, wrote a multi-volume history of the United States of America. And in that history, he basically disregards and says that the United States Constitution has no meaning in the life of this country. And the progressive Oliver Wendell Holmes, as you mentioned, um, carries that forward, that there is no set of rules. 
there is no laws that are the foundation of our legal system. And um, can you explain as to what the role of the Constitution is in the eyes of the progressives? Uh, sure, be happy to. Again, the Declaration of Independence, for all intents and purposes, was the preamble to the United States Constitution. The word God never comes up in the Constitution. That was by design because the Founding Fathers looked to creating a government that secures the rights, as the Declaration says. Not grants the rights, secures the rights as defined in the Declaration of Independence. That meant putting on limits on the, turn, the amount of power that any one person could have. James Madison made it clear that since we are far from perfect, man is ruled has two abilities. What makes him in the image and likeness of God is his ability to reason, okay? But then again, what makes him a beast is the power of passions. So reason is there to sort of control your passions, but that doesn't always work. So he assumed the worst in the nature of man, that even though he has the power of reason, he can be evil, he could be bad. So he wanted to protect the people of the nation from not having any one group that can dominate, hence the balance of powers that we have to set up the government and the fact that he frowned upon factions and wanted to make sure it was difficult to pass laws based on the whims of the people at a given time. So the House of Representatives was set up with terms of every two years because it was assumed they would be close to the people and could listen to the temper tantrums or the thoughts of the people at a given moment of time. But the Senate was created not only to protect, to protect minorities, but to be a more deliberate body where with six years terms and having each state have two senators, people would have to appear to a diversity of views, to use the word diversity. And that could prevent hot-headed people from dominating the government and coming up with wacky, wacky legislation that could ultimately deny the minority of their rights. So it was set up by purpose of that. The, the progressive group, starting with Wilson and particularly Holmes on the Supreme Court, denied that there was a constant to the Constitution. In other words, it was just a set of words that we could change any time we want based on the will of the majority at a moment's time. So they rejected that there was a constant, a need to have a protection of the minority. And as Holmes said, might makes right, whatever the majority wants, I'll approve. It has nothing to do with precedent or laws. So precedent which is the basis in common law, which is the basis of law, as Edmund Burke said, the, the prejudice to prevent anyone from dominating. Holmes and the progressives threw that out the window and said, it is malleable. We will decide what the constitution says based on what the ideas or taste, the value. The word value came into play. The value means very simply tastes, opinions at the given moment, as opposed to to, to moral truths, there are moral opinions, moral values, and they could change at any day of the week. So that made the Constitution malleable and got us to a Roe v. Wade, okay, which obviously the Constitution addresses nothing about this subject, but they decided to impose their view because they had a majority of people on the Constitution, on, on the US Supreme Court. So that's the main issue. The tyranny of the majority, the tyranny of who's in power and when we control. So that's why the Georgia race is very important because what are they gonna do uh, if they get complete power in Washington? What is uh, Senator Warren and others said? Well, to make sure we control it forever, let's do away with the, the uh, electoral college and base it on majority vote, which means 
basically four cities will determine who the president is. The Electoral College was set up to make sure anyone running for president has to appeal to all segments of the country. That will be destroyed. They'll destroy the filibuster, which means the deliberate body of the United States Senate will just become another majority vote situation. They will create two new states, probably, uh, Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia, although there might be constitutional issues with that, to pick up four more U.S. senators. Okay. They would do away with states having two United States senators. They would like to do that based on population as well. So to make sure they get absolute power, they will become the tyranny of the majority, and that's what we have to fear. They want to impose their will because they believe they, they're like the ancient Gnostics. They believe they have the secret knowledge to rule, and that is very dangerous, as we've seen in past history. Part of their agenda legally is to pack the United States Supreme Court, basically to denude the power of the court by turning it into a gaggle of who knows how many people. And um, what, is, what is your comment about the packing of the Supreme Court? Well, once again, when they don't get their way, they want to destroy. Though the Supreme Court, listen, for decades, the, the far left have not been able to implement their programs through the Congress. Many of them got through Obamacare as an example of that. But for the most part, because the Republicans control the presidency or control parts of the Senate or the House of Vote, they have been able to prevent that and the filibuster has been able to prevent it. So since the American people and the Congress were not in their corner on their radical left-wing policies, take abortion, for example, they turned to the courts. So the courts became legislators and they dominated the courts because under Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, for the better part of the time, they, since the New Deal, they have, they, have, they have controlled the Supreme Court and they got their way. Now that is being threatened because it appears that strict constitutionalists in the, in the school of thought as Justice Scalia have a majority, they are fearful that they will not be able to get their way anymore. So their attitude is, to impose our will, we will stack the court, expand it, and put as many people as we have to until we control the courts again. So again, their attitude is, we know better, we are smarter than you, we are the elites, we are the chosen people, and therefore our will matters and yours doesn't, and we can do anything we want to impose our will, including destroying the integrity of the court. As we know, Franklin Roosevelt tried that. Interesting. Franklin Roosevelt understood that the term progressive became an ugly, nasty term, and he wouldn't use it anymore. He called himself a liberal because he feared progressives would frighten a lot of the base of the Democratic Party, the Al Smith FDR coalition, which were the working class folks, which now the far left frowns upon as deplorables or as Biden called them chumps. So he insisted that he be called a liberal. Then liberal term became unpopular, as we know, you know, card-carrying members of the ACLU and all that. So the left decided to resurrect the term progressive because there's such ignoramus as AOC is a case of that. They have no idea of the history of their own party, but there are those who are dictating the Black Lives Matter group, for instance, who was founded by trained Marxists. You know, they understand the roots of the progressive movement. They understand the history. They don't teach that history to the kids. 
that the kids could be formed by being told progressive means marvelous thing, free things, free education, we'll forgive your loans. But they understand it. And so if they destroy the Supreme Court and they destroy the filibuster, control the White House, they may be able to impose on us a host of things that particularly the working class Americans have absolutely no use for. Practicing Catholics, Christians, Jews have no use for, but might makes right and they don't care. You make reference in your Newsmax column that they are willing to use or they will justify the use of violence in the pursuit of their objectives. Can you explain that? Well, I think, and Justice Holmes pointed it out, he used the term mob rule as well. What, what is happening here? It's, it's, it's very complicated. You know, there were riots on 8th Avenue in Manhattan uh, during the summer between the 30s and 40s in uh, the old Hell's Kitchen. Very few people know about it because we have a media that covered up a great deal. However, what we are witnessing is leftists who control the inner cities cannot accept the fact that the failure of the inner cities, okay, what we're seeing again is 1960s, 70s, till John Lindsay years in New York City reductio. My 93-year-old father, who was a New York City cop for, for 32 years and was there in the 50s, 60s, during the riots of the 60s, he said to me, this new defunding of the police is, is like Lindsay, where you know the, the criminals are victims. I said, Dad, you got it right. It's the 70s all over again, but these kids have no knowledge of history and don't understand what brought back the city of New York was the drop in crime. And what we're seeing again is crime coming back because district attorneys don't want to enforce the laws. They're saying the criminals are victims, but more important, they're tolerating violence to intimidate people to get their way. And sadly, weak Democrats in cities across this country are surrendering to the mob. So these are leftist inspired things, putting terror in the lives of people. The left believes terror scaring people matters. Lenin, terror is the first rule. Kill big people, little people, destroy, scare people. So the left is not fearful of using terror to intimidate people, to intimidate politics. Let's face it, all this social media, your lives are being people's lives are being threatened if they dare to disagree. And what's interesting, Alan, and I, I, I was wrong on this one, watching these kids who have been brought up to never have their feelings hurt. Now, we grew up in Brooklyn, you know, we were, if, if we, Alan, you know, we would have hung ourselves 50 years ago if we were offended by our feelings being hurt. Growing up in Brooklyn, your feelings were hurt every day of the week, going to, going to school, walking the streets, hanging out on street corners. But these kids were brought up as to speak snowflakes, where they expected no one to disagree with them, everyone to pat them on the head, give them awards for showing up. And I always thought when they got into the real world, that might work in academia, when they got to the real world, they'll get their butts kicked and this will go away. But it's not. They're winning. Look what happened in the New York Times. Senator Cotton has a column published on the op-ed page of the time disagreeing with the prevailing liberal view. And the senior editor said, okay, we have diversity of opinions here. Use that word diversity. But the junior staff, all these snowflakes, 20 and 30 years old, went nuts saying he offended our sensibilities having that column. And what happened? The editorial page editor gets canned, and they apologize for putting up a column that has a diverse point of view. So these snowflakes are dominating. And then we have corporate America, which doesn't understand Lenin's rule that the capitalists will sell us the rope they'll use to hang them. They have basically cut a deal. 
the big stores, the Amazons of the world, saying, we'll give you the social issues, just leave us alone on tax issues and other issues. They gave billions of dollars to Black Lives Movement. What is happening to that money? It is basically used, being used to work against us or to, to fund very fine lives. We know what Al Sharpton did with his, his, uh, his foundation. He bought, his foundation bought him 400 suits because he wanted, they wanted him to be well-dressed. Jesse Jackson, as we know, abused C-3s, but they get away with that. Donald Trump will probably go to jail for his C3, but that's another issue. But the moral of the story is, again, the philosophical foundation of those Marxists, etc., who are the root of the Black Lives Movement, all these radical movements, they have conned a lot of kids, but they have a motive and they'll use violence to get their way. And that's what we saw this summer. And you know what? Mayors and legislators all around the nation surrendered. The call for defunding the police, which is absurd, and what we're seeing already in the city of New York, parts of Brooklyn, Queens that have come back, where you know you got multi-million dollar homes and apartments, crime is creeping back. And if that continues to happen because of a philosophy that's now being enforced by district attorneys, we don't have to enforce the law, we're gonna see the 70s all over again, when crime was rampant, when the city was emptying out. But these young people don't understand that. They've fallen for, give me the free stuff, they don't understand the philosophical implications that ideas have consequences of Richard Reba, and we're seeing the consequences of that ideas. Violence in the street to get our way. You mentioned in the Newsmax column that Alva Wendell Holmes was an atheist. And what role does belief or non-belief in God play in the attitudes of the progressives? If there is no God, there can be no natural law. There can be no rights that are inherent to a person. A person is made in the image and likeness of God. That image and likeness of God gives him the power of the reason to know right from wrong. He also has the powers of the beast, the passions, but reason is to predominate. That is when we say you're made in the image of God, you have the power of reason. And that reason can know natural law, the natural rights of man, as described in the Declaration of Independence. If there is no God, okay, as Nietzsche pointed out, God is dead, then anything is permissible. The state or anyone could do anything they write. Hobbes would be right when he spoke about, you know, we're in a constant state of warfare, man against man. If you have no rights, if I could kill you because murder is not wrong, because murder by its nature is morally wrong, and the Nazis redefined murder as saying, well, we'll redefine people as non-humans, and therefore we could kill them, it's not murder. So if there is no God, all of this is permissible. As Camus said, if, if, if there is no God, the world is absurd. You can do anything you want, because there's no finality. There's no reason for being. So yes, as an atheist, there can be nothing beyond the positive law I described before, civil law, and there is nothing to restrain the civil legislators. Moral law restrained them. Okay? If that's gone, you could do anything you want. And again, that brings us to the Holocaust, because Nazi law was legal civil law that permitted them to murder people. The, eugenic, the euthanasia laws, okay, which define lives not worth living, was permissible because the state said so and they were the only law. There was no appeal to natural law. So that's where atheism brings us. 
And that's where the left primarily is. And we saw this through, you know, from Marx to Lenin to Stalin to Mao, there is that prevailing view that only the state has power and we can do anything we want, get rid of any undesirables. And no one understands the history of about 150, if you read the Black Book of Communism, the 150 million people that were killed under the auspices of communist states based on that atheistic uh, ideology. You, a couple of years ago, you wrote a book, you published a book on the persecution of Christians in the Middle East. And unfortunately, it's gotten worse, not better. And um, one of the bulwarks against communism from 19th century on has been the Catholic Church. Can you explain how the Catholic Church is making deals with communist China and the, with their persecution of Muslims, of Catholics, of anyone who has any sort of religious inclination? How does, how, what is behind this movement to normalize relations with communist China? Well, your first question is, can I explain that, those actions? I can't. They're crazy. Uh, first of all, the Roman Catholic Church was the bulwark against uh, atheistic communism. Uh, going to Catholic colleges, and I have a degree in philosophy, you automatically had to take a course called the philosophy of communism. And you know, to study the philosophical foundations of Marxism and how it gets to where we wound up, millions of people, tens of millions of people being murdered. And the professor in front of the room, I had a Thomistic scholar by the name of Dr. Ariezo, when he was teaching, he was called Marx, admitted that the one school of thought, you know, Marx is a school of thought had philosophical foundations. They said, the one school of thought that we got to worry about is that of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Thomist, which was the foundational philosophy of the Catholic Church. Louis, uh, Pope Leo XIII uh, put out an encyclical back in the 1880s saying, on the one hand, we have the Bible, where we read and have faith in God and faith in the words of God. But you could also know this through the power of reason and he adopted St. Thomas Aquinas as the fundamental doctor of the church, philosophical doctor of the church, and his teachings in the Summa Theologica, et cetera, which was a philosophical system based on a belief in God, based on the scriptures, but with a, he borrowed from Aristotle, added in Christian teaching, and created an incredible system of thought. The Marxists feared that, because we understood that atheists and communism, again, you destroy the natural law, you destroy God, anything's permissible, and it leads to the, the disasters, the, 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 the reign of terror we witnessed for over half a century under the Soviet Union and still under the communist Chinese. Though the church was the most outspoken. And the difference is this between the Roman Catholic Church and, and Protestant sects is we have philosophical foundations. We could fight the philosophers. We could fight Marxist philosophers. Protestant sects do not have a philosophical foundation. They basically says what the Bible says is it, and we can't go beyond that. We as Catholics say, we have the power of reason for a reason, which you use it. And to use that to critique, criticize, and also to protect Catholic, Catholics or people at large in terms of 
pointing out that there is a natural law and the reasons behind it. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote a great treatise on the natural law and how we know good from bad. So the church had the, had the intellectual wherefore to take on the Marxists, and they knew it. And we saw this through Pope Pius XI, who wrote a stinging encyclical on atheism, the post-World War II writings of Pius XII, and suddenly St. John Paul, who lived under communism and understood that it was a house of cards and helped destroy it with Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, etc. So now you bring up what's happening now. Sad to say you have within the bureaucracy of the Roman Catholic Church in the Vatican, a number of leftists within there who are destroying the church for a number of reasons, but they have this ostapolitik uh, view that you can make peace with the communists. Uh, we saw that under Paul VI to a certain extent. We're seeing it again. It's ridiculous. The one thing we can take to the bank, Alan, is that you could trust the communists to be communists. And the Vatican cuts this deal and it was broken immediately. And you're right, they are persecuting the underground church. Obviously, they are persecuting Muslims, putting them on the, in education camps. You know, that's what the Nazis did in 1933. They put the communists and every, all dissenters in education camps, and we know what happened there. there where is the outrage, not only of the church? Uh, Cardinal Zen is the great man of the year. They wouldn't even let him in the Vatican to make his case. But again, where is the West condemning what's going on in China? Okay, with the, you just take the Muslims, where are they? The silence is deafening. And so once again, the, the West is surrendering to communist China, sadly for economic reasons and money reasons and all sorts of other craziness. So what we went through in the Cold War, we have another Cold War, but nobody wants to admit to it. And uh, as Stalin, as Lenin said, the capitalists will sell us the rope we will use to hang them. That's what's happening right now. Well, George Mullen, on that note, I want to reemphasize that uh, listeners from Georgia and listeners across this country of this interview, the Georgia Senate race is January 5th. Uh, voting is already taking place there. But the enormous importance of winning those seats and not allowing the Democrats to take control of the United States Congress is, I would say, the number one agenda item if we're going to fight back and try to reestablish an America that we know, we love, um, and uh, which is being taken away from us by militant secularists as well as um, progressives. But I want to thank you for sharing, uh, giving us insights into the origins of this um, very troublesome and destructive philosophy that is now in the ascendancy in this country. And as we promote this interview, we will promote that article, and we will also promote your most recent book on one of the leading progressives of the 20th century, Mario Cuomo, a biography that, like I said, people should read because this guy, when he was in office as governor of New York, he in fact uh, challenged 
conservatism, conservative values, the Constitution, the church, everything. <laughs> he um, and and he was a he was a a substantial intellect. He was not a politician just on the make. And um, in your book um, is a very important analysis of the man as well as the philosophies that he promoted. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking the time um, for sharing this with us and a Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you, Alan. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye-bye.